Welcome into the show. Thanks for tuning in this Friday, September the 20th. Hello. This is Daniel Orman coming to you from the Dreamaginate Sports Studios, 8 a.m. on the East Coast, 5 a.m. out west, all time zones in between and around the world. Thanks for tuning in. So, um, got the weekend of games coming up and all kinds of stuff. Um, we talked yesterday about a little bit about Nisa and uh, the Fury um, having some setbacks in Nisa, Philadelphia Fury. Uh, and, um, you know, look, one of the, the important points on this is that um, we all have to realize that this is a brand new league. And, um, you know, not all of these teams have, you know, been a part of, of, of operating at a professional level. So stability is not going to be present at first. And we have to keep that in mind. And it's real easy to overreact. Um, it's real easy to, to, you know, to, to, to look at things and, and think, okay, well, you know, um, the sky is falling. It's certainly concerning, but, um, you know, there, there's always going to be, some of this going on at the top. Um, some numbers that I saw yesterday when uh, when we look at what's going on in the U.S. We have registered youth players in the USA broken down by uh, affiliates. So you have two million six hundred ninety eight thousand eight hundred and seventy four registered with U.S. Youth Soccer. That's seventy three percent of the registered youth soccer players in America. Now, what is not covered in this chart is the fact that uh, these the, this US, U.S. youth soccer is broken down through 55 state associations. So if you are, you know, if you are, if you are in, um, you know, Illinois, it's the Illinois State Soccer Association that is administering youth soccer sanctioned under U.S. youth soccer. Just so that you can understand where some of this is, U.S. youth soccer operates as a national sanctioning organization for 55 state associations. They are the only member of this list that functions in that capacity. Every other organization, you sanction directly with that organization. There is no you know, state association uh, in the same way. U.S. club soccer is at 475,467, 13%. AYSO is at 385,115, that's 10%. SAY soccer is at 93,593 at 3%. The U.S. Soccer Development Academy is at 20,592.6%. U-Triple-S-A is at 6,315. They are at 0.2%. For a total of 3,679,956. Now, keep in mind, registered soccer players... 
within the U.S. Soccer Federation have been declining at about 100,000 per year for the last five years. So this number was close to 4.2 five years ago, and the trends have been going down. And there's nothing indicative in the research right now to, to show that the trends are going to reverse and go back up in a different direction. So looking at the breakdown here, where are we losing? U.S. club soccer has been holding at or around 500,000 players for a while. The U.S. Soccer Development Academy, run by the Federation, does not have access all over this country. We have a country of over 300 million people and only 20,592 kids have access or the ability to play in the Development Academy. We're going to get into, into, into more of the Development Academy here in just a second, but you look at these numbers, where are we losing? We're losing them. We're losing them in the U.S. youth soccer space. And that's where we need to really kind of examine what's going on. Um, what in the programming is losing the kids? They're, they're not just transitioning somewhere else. They are leaving all together. Um, so what is going on there? Why are they leaving? I think ultimately it comes down to a quality environment, quality experience. Quality does not necessarily mean that you're paying through the nose for it, but it's got to be meaningful. And I think another point that often gets lost in this entire conversation is football literacy, soccer literacy. That's both with your head, but it's also with your body meaning your feet, your ability to play, manipulate, control the ball. This is something that Tom Beyer preaches about, talks about, you know, constantly. He beats this drum over and over again, that if, if, if kids are able to manipulate a ball, control a ball, they're much more apt to enjoy the game for a longer amount of time in their life because they can control the ball. They can have fun playing. They're not always having to run and chase. And I think, that is a, I think that is a key point here. We are not doing enough in the ages of two to six with our parents as well as our kids to teach football literacy. That's where the federation, rather than trying to muck up everything else, and create their own development academy. Everything is artificial with the Federation. It's all Band-Aids because they're not doing it right. We don't have the right system. So they're going to try to create their own system to, to artificially address what would be fixed in an open system. Instead of putting all this money into that 
instead of siphoning off kids into that, create a merit-based system in the youth levels. Let teams compete. If the MLS academies are the best and they have the best funded and they have the best coaching and they can recruit the best players, then they can play at the top levels. But if other teams can do it too, so be it. Unleash the market potential of America. And instead, let's put our resources and focus into building a true authentic soccer culture across this country, not just in pockets, but everywhere. Put our focus on these kids and their families who want to do right by their kids, but just don't know what to do. Teach them football literacy. In other news, in other news, um, Major League Soccer is continuing to struggle in um, in the TV space, and they've got a new deal coming up soon. And without without bundling with the federation for the U.S. men's and women's national team rights, I don't say anybody's going to touch this. They didn't touch it last time. Despite Don Garber's proclamations, no one wants MLS broadcast on their networks. They bought the national team rights. And MLS gets bundled in. These games are terrible and no one's watching. From a recent article, as for other local teams on TV over the weekend, Georgia's win over Arkansas State on Saturday... Drew an 8.6 rating. That's about 201,000 homes in the Atlanta TV market. The Braves games against Washington on Saturday and Sunday had 4.1 and 3.5 ratings here. That's 96,000, 82,000 homes respectively. Georgia Tech's loss to the Citadel on Saturday posted a 1.2 rating in Atlanta, 28,000 homes. And Atlanta United's loss to Columbus Saturday night drew a 0.6 rating here. That's 14,000 homes. No one is watching. 14,000 homes. That is 25% of the number of people that show up to games. So think about this. If Georgia is is playing Arkansas State at home. That stadium seats, what, 90, 100,000, somewhere in there? They got about double the number of homes. That's not people, that's homes. Average home, you're probably looking at, you know, four people. So you're looking at about 800,000, 750,000 people watching in the Atlanta TV market. Eight times the number of people that can fit in that stadium. Atlanta United, which can get, you know, 65, 70,000 to a game in the Atlanta TV market when it's not a hangout fest, when it's not a social affair, 
drew an 0.6 rating, 14,000 homes. Not good. Not good at all. So, uh, look, if you are interested in um, having some fun on the show today, DM, go on Twitter, at Daniel Workman, and uh, DM us your contact info, and uh, you may have a chance to uh, to come on the show a little bit later on and, um, and, and have a little bit of, of friendly banter about whatever it is you want to talk about in regards to American soccer. Um, coming up after the break, uh, I want to get into this tweet thread, and um, it is... Uh, it is it is definitely um, interesting. It's from Matt Danner, um, and hopefully I'm pronouncing his name correctly, um, that he posted recently about development, development academy, etc. Some interesting thoughts, and we're going to look at those next here on the Daniel Work show thanks for tuning in this friday our sponsor this half hour is ducktick brand d-u-k-t-i-g brand.com if you hadn't checked out their new t-shirt it is fire do it get your uh, coaching resources at the same time get them personalized and do all of that and get 10 percent off of your order at dw show promo code dw show at ducktickbrand.com D-U-K-T-I-G brand.com and use DW show as a promo code to get 10% off of your order. Thanks for tuning in this Friday. We'll be right back after this. Friday, September the 20th. Thanks for tuning in. 
So I was, uh, as always, perusing Twitter and came across this really interesting tweet thread from Matt Danner. And um, I hope I'm, I'm getting your name right, Matt. Um, interesting thoughts here about uh, the DA. And um, he said, where, where are the Dempseys, the demerits and McBrides U.S. soccer used to produce? This is a thread on the DA where we went wrong 13 years ago and where we're potentially headed. Um, very, very interesting uh, tweet thread that we're going to dive into right now and, uh, and, and look at because I think he's on to something here. I think that he... Um, I think he, he's, he's definitely got some, some interesting ideas in regards to where we're at, where the Federation is, um, all of those things, um, in regards to the development Academy, uh, it, where we are right now compared to where we were. We have basically created this insular bubble for the Development Academy. And um, so, you know, I, th- I think one of the, some of the things that Matt is picking up here, and this is what we're going to get into right now, uh, are interesting to, to look at and, and consider in regards to what, what really is best for American soccer. Um And we are we are going to uh, so we are we are definitely going to um, take a look at that um, and uh, and and see where we uh, where we are in uh in this uh in this in this tweet thread because i think it is very 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 cool so here we go we're going to go from the top and uh just kind of start going down um some of matt's thoughts on the development academy and uh take a look and see where these where he's at and and compare that to some of the things we've been talking about on the show he said, for those who don't know, the Development Academy was formed after the U.S. men's national team's failure to qualify for the knockout round at the 2006 World Cup in Germany. Qualifying from the U.S.'s group was no small task, as the group consisted of Ghana, the Czech Republic, and Italy, the eventual winner. It was the only group of death at the 2006 World Cup. The U.S. lost 3 0 to the Czech Republic in the first match, drew 1-1 with Italy and lost a must-win to Ghana 2-1 to eliminate them from the knockout stage. A few months after the loss, the Federation announced it would be creating an elite development league so that we would avoid failure in the future. The changes 
implemented by the Federation, created a handful of quote-unquote top youth clubs and set them in their own league to compete against each other. The idea being that in order to create world-class players, we needed less games, more meaningful games, and more training time. They used the slogan, world-class players have trained 10,000 hours over 10 years. What have you done today? This was actually written on the back of each player pass. The other changes included no outside play with another team, essentially killing the ODP program, the Olympic Development player uh, program. Initially, players were allowed to play in high school and the DA season would resume after high school season ended, but this was later changed to go to a full year of DA and no high school. It was pretty clear that all of these changes would not have a significant impact until a crop of players was able to go through U10 to U18 inside the new environment. We're just now seeing the impact of these changes 13 years ago. The U.S. has never fielded a team as technical and tactical as our European or South American counterparts. Instead, we've always relied on blue-collar, hard-working players like Clint Dempsey, Brian McBride, and Jay Demerit to work and scrap for 90 minutes. Now, I do want to make a quick aside here as I'm going through his thread. First is this. Part of the reason we've always relied on hard-working players Clint Dempsey, Brian McBride, Jay Demerit are three that he mentions is because we've not looked around the country to find players that are not in our system. Okay, getting back to where we were. These were players who played every level of soccer in the U.S. High school, college, ODP, club, and then went over to Europe and worked their way up the ladder into the Premier League. Hard work was in their DNA. 13 years later, we do not have a single player that we can point to with that same DNA. Pulisic and McKinney have the potential to be good players, as do others. The highest potential being the ones currently in Europe. But I don't see nine others in the mold of Dempsey and McBride. If you're not going to be as technical, tactical as the countries you're playing, you better be willing to fight and claw for 90 minutes to get a result, something the U.S. could not do against Trinidad and Tobago in 2018, a much larger failure than failing to get out of the group of death. And when he, when he says a much larger failure, let me underline that by a thousand times. The task of making it to a World Cup in CONCACAF is set up for the U.S. and Mexico to go to the World Cup every time. My personal take is that by changing the system to eliminate high school and quote-unquote outside teams, we've pushed players away from the grind and towards entitlement. We may be producing more technical maybe tactical players, but the improvement is not significant enough to make up for the lack of work ethic. If a player is playing consistently in a DA team, he knows more or less that he's going to play in college and probably at a Division I program. 
If that's all he aspires to be, he's got everything he needs already, and there's no need to push for more. He trains at the best facilities, plays against the quote-unquote best teams, and has all the boots, gear, and equipment he could ever want or need. Before the DA, if you played high school, you knew you were probably going to be one of the top players on your team. With weaker players around you, you'd have to play at a different level to lift the team. When you're surrounded by 10 top players, there's less less of a need to elevate yourself. At ODP, you'd be in a week-long camp to push yourself above the other players and make the, and make the regional or national team which required incredible work ethic and demands. Now ODP is half of what it used to be. I played DA, high school, club, travel, college, and overseas. When I played travel, I worked every day to make it to the premier team and then to make the DA team, then to make the college team, and then to make the PDL team, and then to play overseas. If I had, if I had played DA from U10 to U18 and had committed to a school at U16, I can't say I'd have the same grind factor in my DNA. I came from a household where I had everything I ever wanted. My parents never struggled to put food on the table. They attended all my games, but they held me and my sister to a very high standard and made sure we worked as hard as their grandparents did to get out of poverty. When I was building Soccer Pulse app three years ago, I probably could have gone to my parents and asked for a large investment to have someone build the app. But instead, I decided to take a $20 online class and learn to code it myself, very frustratingly, over the next three and a half years. I don't think the app would be as good or successful as it's been if I had just paid someone else to build it. I also wouldn't be as invested in it as I am now. There are positives to the DA. I do like having the year-long season. I also like the idea of, quote-unquote, less games. But I don't believe the closed system has actually created meaningful games as it was supposedly intended to do. I think it's done the opposite and created meaningless games. Because if your goal is to play in college, you don't need to win. You just need to keep playing. We need to give other clubs, coaches, and players the opportunity to work their way into the DA on their own accord. But without an open system at the top, it's difficult to see that ever happening. Without the open system, the second best thing we can do is create an environment within our club where excellence every day matters and everything is kept in perspective. The players have to carry the gear, be early for training, and push to win every exercise in every session. If you are affiliated with a pro team, maybe that means the U18 youth players clean the boots of the players in the first team, just like they do in Europe. Without that edge the U.S. used to have, I fear we stay more or less where we are right now. Who knows what impact the girls' DA will have. I guess we will have to wait and see. Interesting thoughts from Matt. And the way that I see this and the points that he's making is right right in line with the need of why we need open competition. And... um, 
and and that is that is 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 such a a key element to what we're lacking. You look at Major League Soccer. Where is that fight, that competition to stay in the league? You cannot you cannot artificially recreate that. There is no synthesizing that element of the game. You can't do that when it comes to the youth game as well. And what we found is that by creating these silos, these closed leagues, these protected systems, what is supposed to be protect, protected so that we can nurture it and grow it and make it excellent is actually doing the opposite. It is robbing the essence of competition. There is no one breathing down your back, and you cannot simulate that ever. You can try for a day. Believe me, I've tried. I've tried with my own kids. How can I synthesize the experience they get while they are in Europe? It's not possible. What's the key differentiator? Do they, have, do they have bigger, faster, stronger players in Europe than we have here? No. Do they have more technical players? Not really. I see plenty of technical players in the U.S. But what I do see is a higher footballing IQ. What I do see is a hunger. What I do see is a desire to make it. A fight. What Matt's pointing out. That comes because the system there is predicated on open movement, clubs, players, etc. Everyone knows that their job is always on the line. They've got to work, 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 work. They can't take a day off. They can't take a season off. They can't coast to a college scholarship. That is the key point. And um, it's 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 so it's so important. I, I just think it's, we can't lose that. And, and as a matter of fact, we're trying something today, Open Line Friday. And Matt is gonna see if we can get him on the phone as we're talking about this tweet thread, um, and 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 see if we can get some more thoughts from him about the DA and our academy system. Matt, hello, Matt. This is Daniel Wertman. You are live on the Daniel Wertman show. Um, we're doing a little bit of an open line Friday, and uh, and I was reading through your tweet thread, and you said, uh, you know, bring me on the show. So we we, we called you up, um, went through the tweet thread. Interesting thoughts on you know where we are in the landscape of the DA. What 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 kind of prompted you to uh, get on this soapbox and uh, and lay it all out there? Um, well, I think I was reading a whole bunch of uh, threads on Twitter, and there were kind of bits and pieces, um, and I didn't see anyone that had put it all together into one thread. Um, you know, so I was kicking a ball against the wall and kind of formulating, you know, trying to put it into one thread, so I just wrote it out and and put it out there, and it seemed to resonate with people because um, I played through it. Um, and I think people, some of them misconstrued it and thought I was saying we need to go back to that system, and I don't think that's the way forward at all. But I think with that system, you got a certain type of player that came out of it. And 
um, unless the technical and tactical uh, improvements in your new system are going to make up for what you're losing with, you know, the blue collar, hardworking type of player that's, you know, just going to work their way to the top, then I don't know if in the end it's worth it. And I think we need to absolutely reevaluate and figure out a, a better way forward than where we are right now. So, um, Matt, Matt, when you look at a way forward and you're, you're trying to figure out, okay, here's where we are. You identified some things you think are keeping us from really going all the way. I feel like that, that the DA is kind of a half measure to where we need to be. Um, obviously, you know, obviously it was, it was an attempt to, to take a step in, in the direction, but we, it's like, it's, it's the same thing that I see with major league soccer. We're not all in on the global game. We're, we're part of the way there. We've taken steps. We're not all the way there. So with the development Academy, you, you talk towards the end of the tweet thread about opening it up um, and allowing other teams to participate based from what I was reading. It looked like on sporting merit where that were, was that kind of where you were coming from on that? Yeah, totally. I mean, I think you have to, you have to start at the top. So if you don't have an open system of promotion and relegation in, you know, your professional game, you know, it's going to close off the youth system anyways. So that's where it has to start. Um, and then from there, once you have teams invested, you know, if they have to invest in the fifth division and work their way up, that's great. And then, you know, they're going to invest in the youth system. So at that point, you're not even creating players to play in college. You're creating them to, to play in your, in your, in your first team. And then you kind of eliminate the need to even have the DA in the first place, because you have the professional teams that are, operate their own academies and they're not worried about, you know, producing world-class players, so to speak. They're worried about producing players for their first team and hopefully they end up being world-class. Um, but you know, it's a, it's a much different environment than if you're just trying to produce a kid to, you know, have a college signing day and say, you know, we're sending these players to, you know, all these division one programs. I mean, great. They're getting educated, but if, if you really want to compete with the rest of the world, that's not going to do it. So, let me ask you this question as, you know, reading your thoughts and kind of, you know, thinking through everything. Can you develop a world-class player in our current development academy system? I mean, I think, I think we have to, we have to define what world-class is because I've seen it, you know, you could throw it around and it doesn't really mean a whole lot. Um, I mean, world-class for me means, you know, you're, in the FIFA, you know, best 11 at the end of the season. Okay. And I mean, for me, that's a, it's an obvious no. I mean, I don't think even, even Christian Pulisic has the best chance of doing it, but even he's, you know, he's not starting in the Chelsea first team, you know, he's at least five or six years away from doing that, you know? So I think if you define world-class as being one of the top, you know, players in your position, we're definitely, you know, it's not going to happen in this system. I mean, you're, you're, we're so far off it. So when when you look at the landscape of the youth game, now we have the Girls Development Academy that is, you know, making its way. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a little bit behind where, you know, the boys DA, which was started first. Do you think that the girls DA is going to have a similar effect in regards to player development? Uh, you know, we're at the top 
on the, on the women's side of the ledger, a lot of that has to do with, you know, title nine and our college system and, and investments opportunities that our players, American players have had compared to the rest of the world. Uh, but the rest of the world starting to invest and starting to, you know, take the game more serious on the women's side. And, uh, and we see that is, is creating a girls development Academy. Is it going to help or hurt where we are on the women's side? Well, I think you, you actually summarized exactly what I was just going to say, which is, you know, we, the U S has always had the advantage of, um, you know, really compared to the, the rest of the world, really improved facilities, a lot more programs, a lot more opportunities. Um, and you know, just by sheer numbers, you know, we're able to roll out an 18 to, you know, 24 players that they're great players, but they're also great athletes. And is that going to hold up once the rest of the world catches up? Cause they are, I mean, it is, the, the gap is closing. I mean, you can look at the attendance numbers for, you know, uh, teams in Spain, teams in England, the broadcast deals, um, that's really catching up. And I think those are actually going to surpass the NWSL in the next few years. Um, so for me, and it's, it's interesting on the girl side, because I think if we treat them exactly the same, obviously everyone's equal, but I think girls are much more inclined to want to play in high school than, than boys were. And I think that's why you had a lot of, uh, clubs that didn't want to go all in on the DA on the girl side, because they were getting pushed back from, from girls that they liked the social side of, of playing in high school. They like playing with their friends. They like playing in front of a crowd. Um, and I think, I think right now they've kind of split it's split between the ECNL and the DA for the girls. And I don't know if that's the best, you know, the best thing. I'm not an expert on the girls DA. I mean, it's just, it's just started, but you know, I think you would want everyone together competing in the same pool against the same, you know, teams. And I think when you split that, you know, you lose, you lose a lot of quality and you lose, you know, the opportunity to actually play against the best teams, you know, that you potentially could. Um, one of my friends is from Italy and he made the cultural point to me. He was like, in the U.S., if you throw a ball to a girl, she's going to catch it. She's going to, you know, throw it right back to you. In in Europe, a lot of times you throw a ball at a girl and she'll be like, why did you, you know, why did you throw the ball at me? I'm not, I don't want to play with you. So culturally, we are ahead of the rest of the world and we probably still will be on the women's side. I don't know if the DA is going to help with that. It may hurt, but I think in a few years, you're going to see the rest of the world definitely close the gap and we'll see, you know, how close it gets. One last question uh, here as we're kind of doing this uh, open line Friday test. First time we've ever done this on the show and, um, and, and glad you were able to jump on as we were kind of going over your tweet thread. Um, you mentioned in, in your last response there about playing in front of crowds. Right. The development Academy and in most club soccer in this country, quite frankly, does not draw crowds. High schools do. And, uh, and we've talked about, uh, we talked about this last week on the show, kind of comparing and contrasting high school soccer to club soccer, what both could learn from each other. Um, how important is it for the development of a player to, to have a crowd that they have to perform in front of uh, as someone making their way up the youth ranks is crowd are crowds important to that 
Uh, I definitely think so. I mean, I think I've actually, I've seen videos on YouTube of IAX training and they have the, like the, the ultras are at the training ground and it look it's packed and they have like flares and that's just a training session for the youth teams. And I think here, when you, the problem with the DA and the difference between the DA and high school from a community standpoint is the community gets behind the high school and they want to go to the games and they want to cheer on the team. And there's a, a pressure that's there from playing in front of your friends, playing in front of the people you're going to go back to school with that, you know, you want to perform well when you're playing just in front of your parents. It's a little bit different, I think. Um, and it's the, it's a little bit more subdued. Obviously, you know, if you're playing in front of, you know, the, the scouts for the national team, maybe that's added pressure. Um, but I think in general, it's, it's by not having that community connection to a team, it hurts the the pressure that's on the players. And then when they go to play in the first team, it's a totally new experience. You know, I think uh, I think there's a, uh, a quote from uh, Dan Abrahams where he talks about pressure. And pressure is just kind of if you were walking on a, a tightrope and you were a foot off the ground, um, that's that's easy to do. Now, if you raise it, you know, you know, a, a mile up in the air. Of course, the it's the same action you're performing. You're just walking on a tightrope, but you've raised the stakes so much that it's much more difficult to do. So I think without the crowds and without the community behind a club, which is what you have in, in club soccer, it's a different environment, and it's much harder to translate that to a player that's then going to go play in a first team in front of those crowds. That's That's what I think. Yeah, I, 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 I agree. Um, as someone who grew up, um, being on stage in front of people, whether it was, you know, at, at church or school, school productions, uh, et cetera. Um, I have no issues getting up in front of people, uh, as you can tell. Um, and, and, and I do think that is a, is a big, uh, thing for, for players in their psychology, the, the ability to perform in front of people. One, one of the, um, if you look at studies over and over again, up there, right there next to the fear of death is the fear of public speaking. In some cases, there, people are more afraid of public speaking than, than death. Um, and and you, you, you may not think about it this way, but when you're playing on a field in front of thousands or, or in the case uh, of television, possibly hundreds of thousands or millions of people, that is public speaking. I mean, you are, you are, you know, you may not be using your mouth in that moment that, that people are listening to, but, but your, um, your play is speaking and, uh, and it's a public performance and, you know, you've got to be ready for that. And, uh, you know, getting, getting kids conditioned to that and, and being part of that, uh, De- development aspect I think is key and I, I do think it's been lost in this whole uh, quest to create world-class players with the closed development academy from the federation um, I, I think that psychological part has definitely been missed and uh, club soccer in general I think suffers because they haven't figured that out they have not figured out across this country I see it uh, I see it locally where I am I see it when I travel around the country uh, communities by and large do not have the same level of involvement or, or, um, you know, passion following, et cetera, as, you know, say a local high school. And, uh, you know, these are the same families, same kids, 
what's different and uh, and those are the questions i think that need to get answered so well matt look thanks for jumping on uh last second um you know i'd love to 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 bring you on uh for a longer segment uh in the near future but uh dude that tweet thread was great and i appreciate you being willing to hop on last second here on friday absolutely daniel thanks so much for having me uh love your work um you know i really really was uh behind eric for his uh his bid but you know things things happen so they do uh, you know, yeah. we'll, we'll just keep chugging along and, and do the best that we can do in our communities and and you know we'll see what happens i i appreciate that uh i i definitely know this if eric would have won it, we would be living in a different federation than we have today but um unfortunately that didn't happen so um but i appreciate that support and uh and your work so uh keep it up and look forward to having you back on again Thanks so much, Daniel. Have a good one. You too. That is Matt Danner. He um, he, he was the author of that tweet thread that we were going over, and I, I appreciate him hopping on uh, last second here on a Friday to kind of discuss that. Um, and uh, let's see. I think we may have one other, one other from uh, that we're going to try to get on the show right now. See if we can hit him. So, picking up on that crowd thing, I mean, look, that is a key element, and we lose it. We we don't we don't have that in play. Cliff, uh, this is this is Daniel Workman. Uh, You are live on the Daniel Workman show. Don't know if you woke up this morning planning to, to, to be on a show, but uh, welcome in. Thanks, uh, thanks for coming on. Uh, what uh, did you want to talk about? Well, I mean, I was, I was suggested on Twitter by someone, um, but obviously I think the, what, what they were referring to was the new Midwest Premier League that Union Dubuque has joined. And uh, yeah, so I think that was... I don't know. We can talk about that. We can. I'm not really sure. Again, like you said, I was not planning to be on the show when I woke up this morning, but I am happy to be here. <laughs> well, um, so let's talk about it. Um, All right. You you are um, interested in the Midwest Premier League? Excited about the Midwest Premier League? What is your role with the Midwest Premier League? Um, well, currently I have no role. Okay. Um, we are. We are. So. I'll, a little bit of backstory here. So a number of teams that we have uh, had relationships with, whether playing against them or just talking to their leaders, we're all kind of putting our heads together over the last uh, few months, basically. And kind of came to the conclusion that something where the teams are sort of more uh, in control was, uh, was necessary. So we all kind of, you know, thought up what we think the ideal you know, regional league would look like, at least here in the Midwest. Obviously, there's other regional leagues in other areas of the country that that do well. So we are kind of uh, decided to, to pull some ideas together. And, you know, a number of teams have committed to the future of the Midwest Premier League. Uh, haven't been announced yet, so I can't drop any names. But basically, we all kind of, uh, after that, we, we, you know, sort of submitted some nominations for league leadership. And... Um, I'm not sure exactly where that'll go. I know there were a number of nominations, but given that, you know, union is the only one that's been announced, I don't, I don't want to pull anyone out of their, 
you know, out of their shell before they're announced. So um, I, it's likely I'll have some sort of role in the leadership of the league, but what that remains um, remains to be seen what exactly that will be. So give me, uh, but without getting into specific teams, I mean, we, we won't speculate, you know, about the New York Cosmos joining the Midwest Premier League or, uh, you know, what other, what other clubs are out there that are, you know, we could drop, but uh, uh, in terms of the league, how many teams are you looking at for, you know, your inaugural season of the Midwest premier league? Yeah. So we'd love to have 16. Um, you know, that's the, that's the minimum number required for official sanctioning as a multi-state league. Okay. Um, and that's kind of been the goal out of the get go. Um, you know, from the discussion we've had so far with the teams already committed, the team's sort of on the, fringe but are interested and then any potential new teams which we've had a couple reach out to us um you know i'm confident that we'll get to that 16 number and that'll give us um you know plenty to you know maybe have two divisions and and make the schedule more manageable for everyone involved in terms of the schedule um what are you looking at in terms of you know if you look at a an annual calendar right now where things are, are you looking, um, you know, to start in what month and then finish kind of roughly in what, in what month? Sure. So one of the main reasons why a number uh, of teams were a little bit dissatisfied was just how the seasons have been going, you know, whether in the UPSL or in other leagues, or if there were teams that weren't in any leagues, you know, um, we kind of got a really, we had to take a really early start last year to make the UPSL calendar work. Um, So what we're looking at is, um, at the right, right now, there are a number of teams that want a longer season, and we're still talking about how to make that happen too. But right now, we're looking at very, very end of April slash early May until the very end of uh, until the early August, basically, is what we're looking at. With and the some of the things, that, so the ideas that have been thrown around is no playoffs, which means we get a longer season. Um, you could play maybe fourteen league games without having to play twice a week and hurt all your players. Um, so that's been one of the one of the big um, ideas going forward is to be able to, to, up, to maximize the season for everyone so that, you know, we don't have a month of good. I mean, especially here in the Midwest, if, if most of the teams are out by the second week of July, cause you got to get playoffs in, then that's just really not what's best for uh, all the clubs here. Now, in regards to the, the league and you mentioned, you know, playing uh, late April, early April, somewhere in there, August sure. kind of as a window. Um, is, is this with the idea of, you know, having college players as, as kind of a primary source of talent or is this like, Hey, let's just find the best players we can find. And, yeah. you know, we're, we want to kind of play in kind of better weather. Uh, yeah, what's the thought process there? I would say right now, weather is the weather and venues are almost the prime consideration with using that time frame. Um, obviously every club makes their own decisions as to where they find their players. And there are plenty that, you know, don't use many college players at all. I know at least Union Dubuque, we saw a little bit of a shift away, um, from having quite as many college players this year as we did last year. So, um, you know, as long as a club is, you know, they have access to that kind of talent then that kind of comes out to kind of to a wash. But I mean, the, the season isn't set up with the idea of having, um, you know, it's not, it wasn't designed to allow for college players, although it does allow for it. Um, the issue that we've encountered most when we talk to other clubs about extending the season into September, October is that their venue 
uh, is no longer available once, you know, the college soccer season starts or once high school football season starts. And so they kind of need to get all their games in before that, you know, kind of mid August deadline. Gotcha. Now, um, looking at the landscape of, of what you guys are working on and, and ambitions and, and all of that, uh, with the Mid- Midwest premier league, when are you looking to launch and, what kind of geographic footprint are you, you know, looking at including as part of your regional setup? Sure. So um, we have announced a launch for uh, spring 2020. It is um, we will be playing uh, in the spring, and uh, kind of that's just that's that's a given. Where uh, I think we're making all the necessary strides to make that happen too. As far as footprint goes, um, what we have sort of said, and this is a difficult decision, right? Because there are so many states that could be considered the Midwest. It's such a giant region that you really um, you kind of have to pick and choose where you want to where you want to be, um, and just how much you want to how much you want to put on the teams as far as travel and that sort of stuff. Because also with the the Great Plains Premier League, you know, trying to get started, we didn't really want to encroach on what they would consider their territory, if you want to call it that, um, because we're trying to work with these other regional leagues to be kind of just this network. Um, of leagues of, of, of clubs that want to play kind of at this level without having to worry about national travel and playoffs and stuff like that. So, um, so what we've kind of decided is the six States, um, starting here in Iowa, including Wisconsin and Illinois, and then also Indiana, Michigan, and Ohio. So kind of the kind of like great lakes territory, if you want to call it that, obviously Iowa doesn't really fall into that. But what we've also said is any, there's not a great lake in Iowa. No, there's not. <laughs> Man, um, newsflash. Yeah. Everyone, newsflash. Yeah. There's not a great lake in Iowa. I know you're heartbroken. <laughs> those, those those Western Iowans over there, they thought they had a great lake on the eastern side, but apparently not. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but one thing we've also included is for any uh, teams that are kind of in the, the near vicinity of these states. So, like, I guess, like, St. Louis comes to mind. You know, they're not officially in... Illinois or in, in Illinois, which is one of the states, but obviously we would we would consider you know teams from St. Louis um, or other other cities that are kind of bordering these states is kind of what we've said. So um, something that's you know it's just reasonable to uh, to keep travel at a, a nice size. And obviously, as you get further south, there's the Gulf Coast Premier League, and whether something ever fills in that kind of Tennessee. That mid middle south. I don't really know if there's a word for that. But if, if something ever feels like that category, then that's Ma- Mason there. Dixon, bluegrass, yeah, basically. Yeah. yeah. So, so if something ever fills that out, then I think you know we've got almost the entire. I guess there's not really anything in the northeast either, but we got we got a lot covered. I mean, there's obviously all the sort of the metropolitan or state leagues kind of in the northeast that that work out really well for clubs that, that want to play at this level so that's kind of the footprint we've given ourselves and i think it it kind of it's large enough to um you know to be a, a good regional league once we once we fill it up but it's also small enough to where it's not you know teams aren't having to drive seven hours to play a game in their division so um what do you want to try to limit travel to in terms of a weekend yeah, that's a good question. Um, you know, it's, it's, I mean, my, my own personal opinion is that, um, you know, when you're playing at this level, you have to be willing to travel a little, you know, a little bit more than you would expect. So when we were in the UPSL, our farthest trip was like three hours and that was, that was nice. But at the same time, if we're, if we're doing this new thing, we might not have quite as many teams 
excuse me, they might be spread out a little bit more. I'd say that, you know, five hours, five, six hours tops, um, you know, for, for a single trip is, is probably maximum with trying to keep the optimum distance somewhere in the, that three hour range at most. Um, you know, if that's what your average trip is and you've got one longer one a year, I think that's doable. And I think that a number of teams, you know, the teams kind of that we're talking to about joining this league are, you know, all able to make that work. Last question here. Um, why start the Midwest Premier League? What what prompted uh, you and others to start having these conversations? Why start something of your own? Why not just play in a um, you know national you know sure. league yeah. uh, of regional leagues with playoffs? Why, why try something different? What's it, what's inspiring this this new quest? Sure, um, that's a great question. I think the the heart of it goes back to, um, you know, the regional league that used to exist here, the premier league of America. And obviously we were not part of that. Um, we kind of came around as the premier league of America joined the UPSL. But one of the big reasons was that we sort of here in the Midwest felt that, you know, decisions were being made that didn't have our best interest in mind. Um, you know, like, you know, the UPSL's decision to start the spring season in March and ended, like we had to have our league games. I had to, as a conference manager, I had to like, basically beg the league to give us a single week in July to play league games or to play regular season games so that we could get the playoffs in before the end of the month. Um, and then what that meant is that, you know, the 2019 teams that didn't, uh, that didn't make the playoffs were basically done and had to play friendlies for the month of July if they wanted to play in good weather. Right. And so we decisions like that, that we kind of decided, Hey, you know, if we, the clubs are actually running this league and we're electing the board of directors and we're voting on things like the length of the season and when it happens, then, you know, we'll have a greater measure of control. And plus, I think part of it is we all really enjoy working with each other. Um, you know, a lot of the clubs that we've, that we've dealt with, and we're like, hey, we want to we wanna do something where we're, you know, helping each other succeed. Um, and because we enjoy just working with each other, right? We don't want to see any of these clubs go out of business. We don't want to see, you know, any of them have to take a season off or anything like that. And we figure that if we're able to, you know, make decisions that work best for us here in the Midwest, then we have a better chance of being able to do that. Well, that makes sense. Look, best of luck uh, to, to all of you who uh, are working on this project. Um, I'm fascinated by it. I've heard bits and pieces behind the scenes uh, about the project and the league. And um, I'm glad that, uh, that, that you were, willing and uh, able to um to come on the show and, and talk a little bit about it as you guys get closer to some more uh announcements and launching or whatever I'd, I'd love to get you or somebody from the league on the show and really dig into to the project itself um i sure. think i think it's pretty fascinating and i uh, would love to to discuss even more detail when when it's time when it's able uh when, when do you think that might be um, we expect that the rest or some more of the teams that have submitted their letters of intent will be announced in, I'm, I'm imagining about a week or so between announcements. So union was announced on Wednesday. So maybe Wednesdays for the next month and a half will be full of announcements. And so then maybe by Thanksgiving time, we'll have you know eight or 10 teams kind of around and, and kind of out in the open, willing to talk about it. And then, you know, I imagine within two weeks or so, we'll have elected at least a president um, who could probably speak more freely about 
you know, how things will be set up and that kind of stuff. But, you know, we will definitely kind of keep you guys posted. And uh, thanks again for having me on, Daniel. Appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks for coming on the show and uh, and dropping in on this uh, first Open Line Friday. And uh, we, we get a little sneak peek of the Midwest Premier League, a new uh, multi-state regional league that is forming up in the north part of the U.S. So good luck to you guys and look forward to having uh, somebody on from the league uh, here in the next uh, couple months. Awesome. Thank you, Daniel. Have a good one. You too. Bye. That is Cliff Conrad and uh, appreciate him stopping by and uh, and having a little bit of a, a chat about the Midwest Premier League and talk about some of the, the, the new things going on. Look, action speaks louder than words and they're taking action and uh, we, can, we can complain all we want but if we want to fix things in America we got to start rolling up our sleeves and doing it ourselves Federation's not going to do it for us we can see that uh, I'd like to thank Matt Danner for, for joining us uh, as well hopping on after uh, I uh, tagged him and, and, and was reading through his tweet thread it was a fascinating tweet thread a lot of a lot of stuff there. I mean, we could have spent the entire show on that tweet thread. There was so much so much stuff to go through. Our sponsor this half hour is Charity Water. You can learn more about Charity Water at charitywater.org. We'll be right back after this. No one, no man, no woman, no child should ever have to drink green water with bugs, with algae, with disease in it. water and a lack of toilets kills more people than all the wars in the world we know how to bring clean drinking water right now to every single person on earth and when you can bring water into communities it truly transforms them it changes everything now you could know that you'd made a difference you could know that you had truly impacted the lives of a family, of a community, of a region. There was either clean water or there wasn't. We believe in a world where every single person has clean and safe water to drink, and we will continue fighting until that happens. Thanks for tuning in this week. Uh, r- really appreciate you tuning in and, uh, and joining the show, the banter, etc. First Open Line Friday. Got our feet wet. If you want to join in, I think we're going to start doing some of this on Fridays. We'll start promoting it more. DM us your contact info on a Friday. Let us know. And, uh, and maybe you'll have a chance to get on the show and talk something about them. American soccer. Maybe it's a project you're working on, something you want to see improved. Maybe you got a question and we want to dig into it and figure out what we can do to help it. Uh, whatever the case, uh, feel free to do so on Fridays. I'd like to thank all of our, all of the guests this week. Look forward uh, to a good weekend and uh, we'll see everybody again on Monday. You can watch the show on facebook.com forward slash WRK. MN DanielWorkman.com or connect with me on social media at Daniel Workman on Instagram or Twitter. Have a great weekend, everybody. We'll see you again on Monday.